KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, teaching assistants and other grad student employees at the University of California won a historic victory in their strike last month. What does that mean for other universities and other union organizing campaigns? Our man Nelson Lichtenstein will comment. Also, Andrew Basevich will talk about our very long war going back at least to the 60s and about the relative insignificance of Donald Trump. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital, where he's been covering the election of Speaker of the House. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, even though this is a uh, full-time job uh, covering <laughs> the election of Speaker of the House. I may uh, uh, may go on for months, but I'm, uh, I, I seem to be on it. Well, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. At this point, Kevin McCarthy has lost six votes, something that hasn't happened in 100 years. And on Wednesday, they did not adjourn for the day. Why not? Well, uh, they're supposed to come back at 8 p.m. tonight. And in this interval between the sixth vote and 8 p.m., uh, they're supposed to be committees uh, of four members from each side of this Republican divide, uh, seeing if they can work something out. You, you wouldn't bet large sums of money on it. Let me put it that way. I see that Donald Trump spoke out on Wednesday in support of Kevin McCarthy. He told fellow Republicans to, quote, not turn a great triumph into a giant and embarrassing defeat. This was all caps in a tweet on Truth Social, his social media site. Did the Trump uh, loyalists on the far right of the Republican Party do what their leader told them to do? Well, before Trump intervened, uh, there were 20 who had voted against McCarthy. And after he put out that tweet and spoke to some members of those, some of those 20, uh, there were still 20 uh, who voted against uh, Kevin. The one Republican who's had a really good day over the last several days is Ron DeSantis, not because of his inaugural address, which was a just a uh, ad hominem attack on wokeism, both real and imagined, but because if Trump is his major rival, Trump clearly just has no juice left with Republican elected officials. This was a guy who, uh, in the old days, if he sneezed, they would all rush at him with a handkerchief or a tissue or something, and now he asks them to, you know, cast a vote for enabling the Republicans to take control of the House, and it has no effect. So why are the Republicans having such a hard time picking their leader? What do McCarthy's Republican opponents want? Some some people say uh, all they really want is chaos. Well, I, I think they want more power. Uh, and I think they want committee assignments. Matt Gates reportedly asked uh, uh, McCarthy to give him a subcommittee chair. I think McCarthy would rather give him an electric chair, actually. But... Uh, <laughs> But I mean, if you're rewarding the people who go up against you, uh, what should the 200 me Republican members who were stuck with McCarthy uh, expect? I mean, this is, you know, when they ask for that, it's a zero sum game and it just infuriates the 200 who are, are, are with McCarthy. That said, they have asked 
for several uh, distinct things. Uh, one raised the uh, issue today of requiring McCarthy to vow that he'll only okay the raising of the debt limit if he basically just decimates the federal government, which is, of course, a possibility that any Republican speaker would do. Uh, another request is to have the Republican, the House Campaign Committee, which, uh, you know, helps all embattled incumbents to stop in intervening in primaries so that, you know, even more right-wing lunatics can uh, run against incumbent Republicans without the House Republican uh, Campaign Committee intervening on behalf of those incumbents. A, a third request from uh, the guy who was receiving the dissident votes today, uh, Representative uh, Byron Donalds of, of Southwest Florida, was that it should just be a sing. Uh, they should require if just a single member raises uh, a challenge to the leader in uh, in the caucus, that requires uh, going to a vote. You know, which would empower the next speaker about as much as a tourist, uh, uh, you know, taking a guided tour through the Capitol, uh, it would be uh, make the power of the speaker barely existent. So it's a little, a, a little hard for all of us to understand what this is all really about. You say there's an alternative explanation for what's been going on here for the past two days with the House Republicans. Please yeah, this explain. Is, this is the anniversary week, of course, uh, a cause for great celebration of the January 6th insurrection two years ago, in which some, you know, loony right, uh, republic, uh, enraged uh, insurrectionists uh, stormed the Capitol and, and stopped the Congress from tallying uh, electoral votes. So it's two years later, and some loony right, uh, enraged Republican members of Congress have uh, stopped Congress, uh, stopped the House, even from uh, convening and swearing in its members. So it's, it's kind of, you know, the same mindset, I think, the attack on, uh, on Congress. You know, but the first time uh, was from uh, outsiders, uh, the sort of the lumpen outside of the Republican Party. This is the lumpen inside of the Republican Party. As the saying goes, the first time is tragedy. But was that, well, you know how that goes. Yeah, I've, so, heard, uh, I've heard about that. I, I, I think, you know, it's it's a celebration by the kind of people who have said the January 6th insurrectionists shouldn't be in jail. They should be uh, pardoned and uh, given heroic status. So it's it's come back to haunt uh, the Republicans, only this time it's an inside job. You mentioned that McCarthy's Republican opponents uh, have been supporting Representative Byron Donalds of Florida. I had never heard of him before yesterday. Who exactly is he? Well, he's spent all of two years in, in, in Congress. He was elected first uh, in 2020, and he if he sworn, if they get their act together, to uh, elect a speaker and swear in members, uh, he will embark on his second term. Uh, he is African-American. And so uh, two of the nominating speeches have pointed out th this fact and that therefore it, it shows, I presume, the racially egalitarian face of the uh, Republican Party. Uh, none of the people putting him forward actually have expressed any real belief that he will become speaker uh, under any set of circumstances in his current stage of his, his career. Both nominating speeches noted that he's uh, a family man, that he loves his family, that he's a businessman, and he's a Christian. 
Those seem to be the attributes attributed to him, which let's face it, uh, are attributes that are significantly widely shared uh, in the American public. No one has attested to uh, his legislative chops as such. But then there's the Democrats. The Democrats have a lot of votes. Their nominee for speaker, Hakeem Jeffries, has actually gotten more votes than Kevin McCarthy on every one of these ballots. Uh, is it possible that the Democrats could help elect a more moderate Republican speaker? I noticed that uh, Ro Khanna, the, the progressive Democrat from Silicon Valley, was on Fox News Wednesday saying, I would consider the right Republican someone I could trust. I'm open to a Republican who we could work with. Ro Khanna is somebody we admire, respect, appreciate. What do you make of this? Well, I mean, I think that's theoretically uh, true. I also think, I also think that the final card that the McCarthy Republicans can play against their 20 never McCarthyites is to say, look, we're gonna, you know, walk out in sufficient numbers that the number of votes required to elect the speaker declines. Now, that would have the effect if, let's say, 15 of them walk out, that would mean the guy who wins the plurality uh, would win. And that would be essentially saying, we'll elect Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, and that would be their ultimate, you know, atomic bomb threat, as it were, to the gang of 20. I think that's, you know, while that's almost imponderable, I think that's probably a more likely option than they're putting up, uh, a, you know, one of the handful of relatively center-right Republicans, such as Brian Fitzgerald or Don Bacon. And, uh, getting some Democrats to vote for that person. Um, I, I noticed that Ro Khanna listed two prerequisites, uh, two conditions. One, you can't have a debt ceiling shut down. And second, there has to be some agreement on subpoena power. Explain what each of these is about. Let me start by saying one of the things the Democrats failed to do, maybe the biggest thing they failed to do uh, when they controlled the House last term was... Uh, increase the debt ceiling to pay the debt. So that remains on the agenda that the new house has to do. And what's the politics of this right now? Indeed. Well, I, I think the thinking was they couldn't get the 60 votes in the Senate to uh, uh, get it through. So why bother in the house? But there's this game of chicken that Republicans have played before that they won't uh, vote to raise the debt ceiling, which is simply saying the, uh, the United States will pay for expenses already incurred. They won't vote for the debt ceiling unless, uh, you know, they can slash the hell out of all kinds of uh, government programs like Social Security, et cetera. And they're willing to close, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're willing to let it expire uh, until their demands are met. On the Republican side, it's not clear that Mitch McConnell would uh, would go along with this, but you know it's something that the Democrats have failed to do, and it seems to be uh, actually a tool in the Republicans' arsenal, regardless of who they eventually elect as Speaker. This is this is their ultimate power, you know. It's putting a, a a gun to the head of the dog and say, "Do what I want, or I'll shoot this dog." So uh, <laughs> certainly, havoc would break loose. 
if uh, the United States abruptly, for this reason only, went into default, whereas actually, of course, it still had the dollar is still the reserve currency of the entire planet. And uh, Rokana's second condition was some agreement on subpoena power. I don't understand what he's talking about. Well, the, the Republicans have justly won a reputation for holding absurd investigative hearings, like the one that uh, six, six Republican-led committees conducted into the so-called Benghazi scandal, which was not a scandal at all, but used to uh, weaken uh, the then-Democratic Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was presumed to be the next uh, presidential nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, so I would think uh, that uh, Republicans would be asked to uh, forego these. I don't think the Republicans would agree to either of those demands. I, I don't see that because actually what Ro Khanna has asked them to do gets to the heart of their meager and not that substantive, but getting us uh, a lot of ink uh, and, and airtime uh, power. Uh, well, so. yeah, I do want to talk about, let us call it, the Republican agenda. Eventually, there will be, the House will be organized under the Republicans. We are all, you know, confident. So what is the Republicans' agenda? What are their legislative goals? Well, they have become notoriously policy light in recent years. Remember that the 2020 Republican convention declined not even, it went beyond declining to pass a platform. It didn't even draft a platform. Similarly, Kevin McCarthy in uh, the summer spoke of uh, coming up with uh, his version of Newt Gingrich's contract with America, which had 10 specific objectives. Didn't really do that, just came up with a series of vague goals. So the Republicans mainly intend to revive the Benghazi strategy of investigating anything they can claim uh, merits investigation, uh, chiefly, uh, you know, the alleged conduct of Hunter Biden, and, uh, you know, just the old opposition to spending anything on that could actually help uh, actual people. Uh, they also want to cut the appropriation uh, for the Internal Revenue Service, which, of course, uh, is one of the ways they retain the uh, financial contributions of the very rich folks who play a major role keeping them in office. One key question here about the future of this uh, Republican House is, what does Tucker Carlson want? Since he has a lot more power than almost uh, any, any member of the House, I saw that on Fox on Tuesday night, he uh, was not outraged over the treatment of Kevin McCarthy. He was sort of... Uh, reveling in it, he said, the fact that this race has not been settled by now is been described by some online as embarrassing. That would be Donald Trump. It is embarrassing if you prefer the Soviet-style consensus of the Democratic Party's internal election. But if you prefer democracy to oligarchy, this, this is Tucker Carlson, you if you prefer real debate about issues that actually matter, it's pretty refreshing to see it, close quote. So he's not behind Kevin McCarthy. Apparently not. Uh, I, I, I think we've probably hit an inflection point in the Murdoch empire, in which you'll find actually some differences between Tucker Carlson and, and some of the Wall Street Journal editorial writers who aren't necessarily, who sort of understand that their readers 
don't necessarily, uh, you know, the people who read and actually believe Wall Street Journal editorials don't necessarily uh, uh, think this is a good thing, whereas Tucker Carlson is probably convinced that the people who actually watch Fox News do think it's a good thing because they just want to trash uh, what they see as the establishment. And so there you have the paradoxes of at once an elitist and a populist so-called Republican Party, uh, evident within the Murdoch empire itself. And meanwhile, the Democrats in the House have gotten organized. Tell us a little about where they stand right now. Well, I mean, they're basically sitting there watching the Republicans uh, make utter buffoons of themselves. Pete Aguilar, who it falls to as the caucus chair to renominate uh, Hakeem Jeffries every time there's a ballot, is is down to just uh, doing it in a kind of pro forma way. This is a spectacle, and anyone who engages in sort of a compare and contrast exercise looking at this, uh, looking at the two parties, the Democrats figure will, uh, you know, appreciate the Democrats all the more. That's 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 where they're at, and they've maintained the unified vote of every single member of the caucus for Hakeem Jeffries uh, through all six ballots, and I don't doubt will continue to do so uh, going forward. And let's not forget, Democrats also control the Senate and the White House. Uh, it is a rule in American politics that anything presidents are going to accomplish really has to come in their first two years because they always lose that first midterm. Uh, that happened to Obama. That happened to Trump. Now it's happened to Biden. Happened to Clinton. Biden has, of course, accomplished a lot in his first two years, which we've talked about here more than once. I wonder if there's anything he can accomplish in the next two years with Republicans in charge of the House. I noticed that his New Year's Eve tweet said, quote, I think it's going to be a great year. Why? Because we get to start implementing a lot of things we passed last year, close quote. That, of course, suggests he's not looking forward to any new initiatives. Well, uh, he can still get confirmations through the Senate. And so he'll appoint a lot of judges and ambassadors and uh, members of regulatory agencies. Uh, it, it's worth noting that on the same day that the Republicans couldn't get the House uh, up and running, uh, Biden appeared with none other than Mitch McConnell to dedicate uh, a new bridge over the Ohio River, uh, uh, running from Kentucky across the river to uh, Cincinnati uh, in Ohio, which has long been uh, hoped for by people on both sides of the bridge and <laughs> both sides of the political spectrum. And as part of the Biden, uh, is a result of the Biden infrastructure bill, which he did sign in his first two years. So yes, implementation is what one of the things he looks forward to. And I should add that one of the things that the prospects editor, David Dayen, uh, has been directing our coverage of uh, since even before Biden took office. What is it that the executive branch can do? And there are so many progressive appointees that Biden has made to, you know, uh, agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, and so on, that they, they have done and will continue to do a lot. I noticed that one of his best uh, appointments, Tim Wu, who was his top official in charge of antitrust action, is resigning and returning to teach at Columbia Law School. Doesn't that tell us something about what, at least what Tim Wu thinks is gonna happen with antitrust? I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think people, uh, Tim Wu you know, is a law professor at Columbia. 
And uh, the condition of going down to Washington was that he could only stay for a couple of years. Ah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, it, with the Justice Department Antitrust Division headed by Jonathan Cantor and with Lena Khan uh, heading the uh, Federal Trade Commission, you have the most rigorously anti-monopoly, antitrust team that's been around. And while Wu was sort of the White House point of that triangle, uh, the remaining two uh, have the power to do a heck of a lot. So uh, I, I don't really take that as a strategic withdrawal of progressivism. I take that as what often happens to academics who uh, go into public service for a while. Last question. Is there anything surprising about what is happening now to the Republicans? I, I know that in 2015, attacks from the Republican right wing drove John Boehner uh, to quit, and then his successor, Paul Ryan, stuck it out for a couple of years, and then he quit. Is there anything surprising in what's been going on here? Not really. The, this, this current generation of Republicans are more performative than they are anything else. They're defined by attitude, by anti, what they call anti-swamp, anti-establishment attitude, and they get points for it when they go on to Fox News. And the existence of outlets like Fox News and social tweeting on social media and such have caused a number of them to view really what their job is, is to just go trashing merrily along on these, you know, historically new uh, modes of communication, uh, you know, and uh, with, with not great concern for issues of, of, of policy and power and kind of uncertain about how and they should use power if, if it falls into their lap. And I think we're just seeing the latest episode of that in the speaker battle. Harold Meyerson, you can read his coverage of the speaker battle in the house at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. And back to the salt mines. <laughs> A postscript recorded Wednesday night. The House convened. Kevin McCarthy declared he did not want to vote because obviously he would lose again. The Republicans then moved to adjourn. The Democrats opposed, but the Republicans got a two-vote majority in favor of adjourning on Wednesday night. So they did not vote again on Wednesday. Uh, they're going to try again Thursday at noon. Eventually, probably, Kevin McCarthy will concede enough of his power to enough of the 20 who have opposed him to get himself confirmed he will then be in the weakest position that a speaker has ever had the last time a speaker's election went beyond the first ballot that was of course a hundred years ago in 1923 interesting story here that was when republican moderates and liberals there actually were republican moderates and liberals in 1923 they held out to win rules concessions and and won them finally on the ninth ballot. Harold Meyerson points out that among those GOP liberals was future New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He had lost the Republican primary for his East Harlem seat a few years earlier, then asked the Socialist Party if he could be their candidate, and they said yes. Probably the first time a Republican has run on the socialist line. And he won and retained his seat uh, in the November election of that year. 
There's only one other historic point of comparison, and that goes back to pre-Civil War days when multiple ballots for the Speaker of the House were occasionally uh, happened. Uh, in 1856 was when the record was set. Uh, 133 ballots over several months. Of course, this was just on the eve of the Civil War, so the party system, the Republican Party was just emerging and doesn't, didn't yet have enough uh, power to organize the House itself. Uh, 133 ballots over several months, 1856. We hope this one won't last that long. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The UC strike is over, with a historic victory for 48,000 grad student employees and postdocs represented by the UAW. Their five-week strike was the largest labor action of academic workers in history and the biggest strike in the country last year. The reverberations will be felt for months and maybe years to come helping energize the surge of union activism that could reshape not only American higher education, but other sectors of the economy as well. For comment, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including the definitive history of the UAW, titled Walter Ruther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Berkeley. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, remind us what the TAs and tutors and others won at the end of fall quarter. What was in the contract that they voted for? The uh, postdocs and, and some academic researchers that settled the contract in early December, and they won substantial wage increases. We're talking about, you know, a 40, uh, 30, 40, and 50% uh, over a, a five-year period for these postdocs and, and older uh, and more permanent workers uh, uh, in the labs and such. Then the, the, the teaching assistants and tutors and read, readers and, and uh, other kind of graduate student workers continued on strike. And, you know, there was brought in a mediator, uh, and then I think the, the governor intervened to a degree and others. And then they, they won a uh, really a substantial wage increase of over two, only two and a half years. Really, we're talking about 50 to 60 percent, depending on the experience of the student, of students, sometimes even more, which is a, a tremendous amount, given the, the short amount of time. The uh, University of California, as a result of the strike, they, they twice improved their their offer and uh, the final offer really, for example, um, uh, ends up with the most of the teaching assistants receiving so get $34,000 a year at least. And some will get more with more experience. There's a kind of step system. So some of them make 36, 38, even more uh, by the end of two and a half years. And actually the first year they're going to get uh, beginning in three months, they'll get seven and a half percent. And then another three months after that, another actually 16%. So there's a big jump right away well, within a, several months. So that's, that's quite uh, substantial. It really, it, it's, um, how should I put this? It's qualitatively different. Uh, I'll just give you an example. 
in, in the the UC is in one of its offers was oh okay we'll give you a three and a half percent increase in the third year that would be like I think 2024 then they improved that to to 16 <laughs> percent and I asked a veteran unionist uh, the other day I said have you ever heard of that where where a company uh, they, they they move from three and a half percent to 16 percent in a one no they, no it, it, maybe they'll go to seven percent but anyway it was a bit, it was a substantial substantial wage increase there was some opposition there's some things that that uh, the, the, some of the grad students didn't like, uh, for example, or no um, uh, relief really to foreign students have to pay out-of-state tuition. And I was talking to some uh, people at Berkeley here just the other day, and and the foreign students, you know, in the sciences were much more active in this strike than ever before. You know, usually they're, you know, they come in, they're, they're you know, their, their language skills aren't so great, and they're, they're going to go back. But in this case, they were very active. So that was a big issue. And then, of course, there's also some of the grad students at um, Berkeley and UCLA got, got, got somewhat more money than others. So, so it was a very good settlement. So we're interested in the implications of this historic victory for other campuses, other universities, and other workplaces of all kinds. The UCTAs had one tremendous advantage. They worked for the state of California. Explain why that was so important. Yes, they, they, first of all, there, there was a, a law uh, which provides that public employees in the state of California and, and a number of other states like New York and Massachusetts, northern states generally, uh, can, you know, uh, legitimately uh, have a union, have elections, uh, bargain, uh, and then an agreement. And, I mean, this was not the first agreement that, that grad students had, had signed with, the, with UC, although by far a, a very different and, and much better agreement. So, so yes, yeah, so that public employees, and that's, that's, uh, that's very important. Unlike, for example, the Starbucks baristas, who who basically, you know, they they they've been very active, but but they don't have a contract. It's been a year since they the beginning, and they and they they don't have a contract, and, and right now they aren't, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to get a contract. There's a stalling tactic. The University of California couldn't couldn't do that, and they and really they couldn't fire any of the, the TAs as well. So the, so it it was a better uh, system than in in most of the private sector. And let's also note for other state universities where TAs are organizing, California is, has complete democratic control. The unions have a lot of power in the state legislature. And second, California is an immensely wealthy state. So in principle, they can afford big raises. Well, that's true. Uh, that is true. And, and I think that, that uh, despite the various uh, uh, cries that uh, uh, sort of uh, our budget won't allow it, the fact is that there is a budget surplus, et cetera. But, John, I wouldn't emphasize that quite so much that, oh, California is a peculiar place. I mean, I, and I think that the ripple effects of this uh, strike and this victory are going to be felt in both public and private uh, institutions uh, um, uh, that, that employ uh, the same sort of workers. Let's talk about how private institutions are different. They are subject to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which has rules about what it takes to organize a union. Let's just note that the first step for other campuses, especially on private universities, is not a strike. The first step is winning an NLRB election. And what does that take? Well, right. And for, for private entities, everything from General Motors to, to Harvard University, they're not governed by a state law. They're governed by the 1935 Wagner Act, which set up the National Labor Relations Board, which can hold an election. And what has happened up to just now, up to recently, was that many of the Ivy League schools and the, you know, other, other private schools 
Yale and Harvard and Columbia and et cetera, were resisting, resisting unionization of their teaching assistants and, uh, and others as well. And we're really kind of playing pretty hardball. For example, I just had a wonderful conversation with the, the former head of the Harvard Graduate Students Union, Brandon Marcella, who um, is, just got himself elected uh, uh, head of Region 9 of the UAW. This is, it'll be on the executive board. I mean, this wow. is a 28-year-old, 28-year-old history graduate student who, who well, he, was, he, he has dropped out. He, he didn't get his PhD, but he's very well liked by not just the grad students, but other, other kind of people in, in New England and New York City. That's the, and he's on the executive board. So Harvard has sort of caved and then, I, I think uh, at Columbia, and so many of these sort of high-profile private schools have sort of reluctantly, okay, we'll recognize the the the, the union, and then I think this UC strike is going to be a big spur to that as well. These schools, which according to the LA Times, have filed for NLRB elections, include the University of Southern California. Northwestern, Yale, Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, Boston University, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Caltech plans to kick off its organizing campaign this month. So a lot is going to be happening in the coming months, and there's also drives underway at semi, what should we call them, semi-academic institutions like the Brookings Institution, the National Institutes of Health. They're sort of, some are public, some are private. There too, workers, intellectual workers are are organizing. And grad students are winning big increases in financial support without organizing unions or going on strike. At the University of Washington, Campus negotiators in November made an opening offer to raise the minimum pay for postdocs from 54000 to 65000 And Caltech announced last month that it would increase grad student stipends from 38000 this year to 45000 next year. Do you think this has anything to do with the labor action in the University of California? Yes, and I think it has everything to do with it. I think it's a classic instance in which a, a major institution, uh, after a battle, and it was a hard-fought battle, offers substantial uh, concessions and recognition, of course, to a substantial body of, of workers. And then everyone else in academia, you know, you don't compete exactly like Ford and Chrysler and, and, and General Motors do. But nevertheless, there's a kind of competition, kind of follow the leader. And when you have an academia, Harvard and UC – both recognizing a union and offering higher, uh, much higher pay, you know, this sets the standard. And you're right, John, not just academia, not just the grad students, but, but wherever you find, you know, well-educated, but underpaid, you know, people doing work of that sort, like museums and research institutes and things of that sort all over the country. I mean, it's just follow the leader. And it's reminiscent of what happened when other when when you had union upsurges like in the late 30s or the or the or the early 70s with municipal employees when managers and 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 officials and, and would say hey look what's happening over there we better get ahead of this because we don't want we don't want chaos or strike or whatever in some cases they're they're, they're anxious to give a wage increase so as to avoid unionization you don't need a union we've already given you the wage increase yeah. this is a, a, a salutary 
dynamic we haven't seen for many years. Yeah. Frankly, usually it was the other way around in the private sector. Oh, we're cutting your wages. We're cutting your health care. We're cutting your pay. Okay, and then everyone else did the same thing. Well, now, it's the, now we have the, other, the opposite direction. So that's a good thing. The mainstream media have mostly looked at the consequences of the UC strike for other universities. But in our past conversation, you have mentioned that the lesson here, organize a union, go on strike, get 50% pay increase, applies to a lot of places other than universities. I wonder what sectors you think might might be next. Well, right, this whole strata of, of sort of young, uh, well-educated people, I mean, that we, that we can argue about why that's the case, but that is the case right now. Everything from newsrooms to, to Silicon Valley gamers and, and, and research institutes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they, you know, they, they, they were kind of underpaid and uh, unionism, unionism was resisted. You know, I think that's now kind of almost not exactly a breakthrough, but clearly that, that strata is in motion. And I mean, obviously, many reasons for that, the pandemic and inflation, but it's clearly in motion. And, and you know, this is the way consciousness is transformed. If you say, well, they did it over there at Berkeley and, and, and we can do it here in the, where, wherever it is, at, including the University of Virginia, where I spent 10 years teaching, which is in a right to work state and, you know, in a kind of classically paternalistic institution. But I, I, there's some noises going on there as well. So uh, I think this is a, um, a society wide, at least for a strata, a certain strata of of workers um, uh, are in motion right now, and I think this is a very good thing. And I would this would apply, by the way, uh, it does apply to the to kind of the well-educated sort of retail sector, the people who work in Apple, the people who work in REI, and the baristas, uh, uh, you know, around. Uh, it, it has an impact there as well. So I think that uh, you know we even point to that. You can you can I, I, I at this meeting I was at yesterday uh, uh, with some of the grad students and and you know like the Cal State people. Hey. Berkeley did it. We can do it, too. You know, so it, I think that's what's happening. Last issue. The vote on the UC contract was far from unanimous. The TA contract carried statewide by a little more than 60 percent, and three campuses had a majority vote of no. Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, and Merced, these are smaller campuses, but they're still significant for the union. What do you make of the divided vote? I thought the vote was was just right. <laughs> in other words, like, you know, uh, not too hot, not too cold. I think, in other words, it was a, it was a substantial majority, but there's clearly a, an important minority. I think that, I, I think that I, my view, my personal view, just as an observer, the, the strike could not go on. I mean, you, you, you have to end these things at a certain point, and there was, a, and it would have been divisive and, and sort of ragged uh, as a no vote one. But, Yes, there was a, a good substantial majority, 60%, 62%, I think. But, there was a, but the minority is there. And I do think, actually, in the, in the last kind of end game of this, of this strike, that the fact there was a strong minority, I think, was an impulse for UC um, to, to come, come forward. And it, and it augurs very well for the uh, future. So first of all, the, the minority group, the, the those who are against it, those people issued very constructive statements saying, we aren't satisfied, we don't, you know, we didn't win enough, and we're going to, you know, keep, we're, we're going to keep at it, you know, we're going to keep at it. And by the way, I should say right now, as we speak, there's a very important election on the national level, level taking place inside the UAW between a uh, insurgent group and, and, and the, really the kind of the old guard, and, and that's taking place this January. So I think, and you see 
uh, UAW members and others around the country are, are eligible, of course, to vote in that. Really, they're gearing up, you know, for the next next round, you know, into it only two and a half years. One of the victories of the strike was it wasn't a really long contract, like five years, which you, the University of California originally wanted. It's only really two and a half years. We're halfway through this this year. And so negotiations will begin again in, in just, you know, really two, less than two, two years, two years, really. So I think that it was a good ending of the strike. And the leadership, the president of the UA, the TA local, Raphael Jamie, you know, issued a statement saying, yeah, we didn't win everything and we're going to mobilize to get better next time. So I think that that was a good ending of, of the strike. Nelson Lichtenstein. Nelson, thanks for all your work on the UC strike for us over the last month. You've been terrific. Thank you indeed. Great to talk to you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Donald Trump's candidates in November lost those key races for senator and governor in the swing states. He's facing criminal investigations, criminal indictments, guilty verdicts on many fronts. The party leaders would love for him to disappear, but just when you think we're finished with Donald Trump, he pulls you back in again. He's declared his candidacy for 2024. He's in the headlines almost every day. What does that say about the health of our democracy and about our history over the last 50 or so years? For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. Well, our friends are divided about Trump. Many see him as a transformational figure, paving the way for American fascism. Others view him less as a cause and more of an effect, an effect of longer term trends and developments. You've always been in the second camp and your new book opens by declaring there was no age of Trump. Please explain your basic argument here. Well, I, I think the argument begins with acknowledging that uh, the, the nation is in the midst of a profound crisis. I think that it manifests itself in a misguided approach to foreign policy, which has us mired in almost continuous wars, and also domestic dysfunction. It's economic in the sense that it, it, it finds expression in, in inequality. It's cultural. Uh, it's racial, it's religious. And although Trump, with a certain perverse genius, I guess, has exploited that crisis to his advantage, I don't see any real evidence to suggest that he created it. Uh, so as you said in your introduction, yeah, he's not the cause, he's the effect. Lots of people see a contrast between America after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, when a new era dawned without global superpowers threatening to destroy each other. People see a contrast between that and America after 9-11 in 2001, which resulted in a new militarization of basic U.S. policy, viewing the world as a place full of threats and dangers. So in this view, 1991 brought an opening up of hope. 
9-11 brought a closing down, an era of fear, the global war on terror. But you say there's a longer pattern. There's a unity behind those apparent shifts. You call it the very long war, which you date as 1965 to 2021, beginning with the escalation in Vietnam, ending with the last Americans leaving Afghanistan, a 56-year war. Please explain the very long war. Well, I mean, let me confess, that's an artificial construct. I could make the same argument, I think, of a, of a long war beginning in uh, December 1941 uh, or 1945, We have been an imperialistic nation. We have been an aggressive nation prior to World War II, but we were not permanently committed to the proposition of defining our identity uh, in terms of military greatness. The, the essay that you referred to, which begins the argument in 1965, more than anything else is probably a reflection of, of me. <laughs> Me too. Is, a Me member, too. <laughs> you know, a, a, a member of the boomer generation. And as a member of the boomer generation, if I say the war, speaking to friends, the war, I'm talking about the Vietnam War. Yeah. My war, our war. Yeah. My mother would have said the war. And she, would, of course, would have been referring to World War II, in which she had participated. So, in, in, in ways that probably are difficult to justify, My worldview has a start point, a, a launch pad with the events of the 60s more broadly, not just Vietnam, but that decade. And therefore, the story I tend to tell tends to be a story that begins in the 1960s. And it's a story in which the Vietnam War tends to figure uh, as uh, exceedingly important, formative. Just thought experiment here. What if the United States had not intervened in Vietnam and had not responded to 9-11 by invading Afghanistan? What might have happened? You're making my head spin. <laughs> making, I'm about to explode. <laughs> Th those were both opportunities to take a different path, to take a path diverging from the concept of an American century. That is to say, diverging from the notion that the global order had to be one founded on American primacy. Arguably, potentially, we would have become a different nation. In, in neither occasion did that possibility even receive the slightest serious consideration. I mean, how long did it take George W. Bush to embark upon a global war on terrorism? defined not simply as, not simply as uh, an enterprise intended to prevent a recurrence of 9-11, but actually designed as a great crusade uh, in which the United States of America would uh, spread freedom in American style democracy uh, throughout much of the, of, of the greater Middle East. Preposterous and yet very American. And For the course of this very long war, if we had not intervened in Vietnam 
and not invaded Afghanistan, how might that have affected the Soviet Union and China? I must admit, as an as a old Cold Warrior, which I was in my youthful days, you and I probably would have been on opposite sides of the barricades. I think so. Uh, but in, in, in retrospect, I've never believed uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union were going to come out of World War II and be friends. I think a competitive relationship, in, in many respects a hostile relationship, uh, probably was all but an inevitable. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we would have necessarily embarked upon uh, an arms race, doesn't necessarily mean we would have engaged in all kinds of you know, shenanigans in the underdeveloped world, doesn't necessarily mean we'd, we'd have the great face-off of opposing forces uh, in Western Europe. But the might have been would be that, and particularly in the case of the Soviet Union, that the the inevitable failure of the Soviet system might have actually happened earlier. I, I do believe uh, that Marxism-Leninism as practiced in the Soviet Union under, under the shadow of Stalinism, that that was doomed to fail. And I suspect that the architecture of the Cold War probably kept it from failing sooner. So that, a again, a more modest policy without the preoccupation with facing off against the Soviets, without the claim that we that it was a bipolar world, without the claim that this was, you know, freedom besieged, actually might have seen the collapse of communism happen sooner. But let's face it, you and I are engaged in, you know, pretty wild speculation here. One thing is for sure, we wouldn't have had 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. Yes. And where exactly does Trump fit into this history? As I recall, he ran in 2016 as a critic of American intervention around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the America First uh, theme was a rejection of American globalism that dated from the immediate aftermath of World War II. I've always believed that he quite literally uh, didn't know what he was saying. Hmm. Uh, that that he is a historically ignorant man who was probably handed the phrase in a three by five card by some aide and was told use this in your speech. I'm being a little sarcastic, but but not that not that that much really. As president, his his ignorance, his his lack of a work ethic. He was a lazy man. Yeah. I remember when the stories came out of the examining his schedule for the day and the hours where he basically was unscheduled and it was leaked from the White House that he was sitting in sitting in the Oval Office watching TV by himself. It was called executive time on the president's exactly calendar. Right. Exactly right. So in, in an odd sense, the, the United States was kind of on autopilot for four years. He did damaging things. He was not completely passive. And you know, and you could also say there were a few things that came out of the administration that were actually good. I don't know. I mean, some people would say that. Some people would say that it was about time uh, that the uh, embassy uh, in Israel moved to Jerusalem, given that that's the capital of the country. But I, I have always believed uh, that, as ill-intentioned as he is, that his impact is quite limited, and that his legacy, I think, is like to be likely to be trivial. Hard to say that or see that today when once again he's potentially a, 
a serious candidate for the presidency. But I think that 30 years from now, when we have a certain critical distance from the period that we're now living through, and we try to figure out what imparted to that period, its characteristics, I don't think that the shenanigans of Donald Trump is going to figure as a very important cause. You open your new book with a a quote from, famous quote from George Packer, who wrote on election night in 2020, we are two countries. Of course, he wrote as a liberal, so he meant one was bigoted and ignorant and anti-democratic, and the other was tolerant and enlightened. And then you write, four years of relentless obsessions about Donald Trump culminated in this sort of judgment, which you call too convenient by half. Please explain, you don't think that we are two countries today? Oh, I do. Well, I mean, maybe we're 10 countries in the sense that uh, the divisions are profound. The level of animosity uh, between different camps, but it's too easy to say it's a left-right split. It seems to me for, for a nation to be a nation and for a nation to, to function, to be able to recognize and take on its problems, re- requires a certain basic sense of unity, cohesion. And I don't think that exists. Maybe I'm overstating it too, but uh, the divisions are profound. I must say, I see the Biden administration as kind of a placeholder that this administration either lacks the, the, the wit or the capacity to address those divisions in a meaningful way. I, I certainly think that President Biden is on balance a man of goodwill, but I don't know that he possesses the necessary insight uh, to do what needs to be done. I mean, I pay attention mostly to matters of foreign policy. What we get from him uh, and his administration is this notion that uh, we're engaged in this great cosmic struggle between uh, democracy and authoritarianism. There's the good guys led by us, and there's, there's the bad guys, and that's, uh, that's China and, and Russia. And I just find that to be too simplistic. I think I understand why they frame it that way, because it's a framing that does recall the, the operative paradigms of the 20th century. Us against the fascists in World War II, us against the communists after World War II. And let me just add, us against the terrorists after and then us 9-11. Against, us against the terrorists. And there, and there is a certain value, I think, in, in framing things that way. But it's, at the end of the day, it's not accurate. I mean, it doesn't describe the world. And in particular, I think, you know, that, that us against them presumes that whatever the conflict is about, the us will, will prevail. And when the us, when we prevail, that once again, American primacy will be restored. And, you know, we're, we're back into the age of the indispensable nation. We're back in the age of, you know, we're number one. I don't think that's helpful in the present moment. Andrew Basevich. You can read him at The Nation and at Tom Dispatch. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much.
it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music